it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Tonight we have episode 237. We got two and a half great questions that we're going to go ahead and read today. And we're going to work through those. And Andrew and I will do our usual give and take. So I'll go ahead and read the first question. So we have, hi, Dave and Andrew. I'm new to investing and have found your podcast very informative and entertaining. Thank you. You're welcome. My recent investment research has suggested that industrial and precious metals can be smart investments, especially during a market slowdown or recession. Looking into large market cap metal slash mining companies, it appears that they almost all raise human rights and environmental concerns. I don't want to invest in an unethical company. Do either of you hold stock in a metal company or have any other thoughts on this topic? Thank you in advance, Crystal. So, Andrew, what are your thoughts on Crystal's really interesting question? This can completely become a can of worms. And I think it's an interesting thing to think about for sure. It's tough because I think you can dig deep enough and find something wrong with pretty much any company that's out there. You know, obviously you see the stuff that gets on the headlines, but if you dig down the surface, the business world's a very imperfect place and there are bad actors probably at every company. And so. <laughs> Depending on how specific you want to get on unethical, your definition of an unethical company, it could, taking that too far could lead you to not investing in anything ever. And I would never advocate for that. That said, you know, there is something to be said about ethics and investing. And I know that's something that's gained a lot more popularity as of late. And so as somebody who's taking responsibility for your own investing, you kind of have to answer that question for yourself. I mean, I know for me, I feel as a fiduciary to the people who subscribe to my newsletter as I'm picking stocks for them, even if I'm not by legal definition, I feel that way. And so 
my thoughts on how I interpret a company's ethics might be different than your own, and that's completely okay. And so you have to balance, you know, whether you're fiduciary of other people's money, that's one thing, or if you just, for one reason or another, just don't like a company, there's nothing wrong in, in not doing that. If you're just talking about managing money for yourself, that's kind of my initial thought. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I would tend to agree with pretty much everything you're saying. The hard part about when you start talking about investing and some of the ethical questions, it can become a slippery slope. And I think you have to invest where you're comfortable with your ethics. I'm not advocating for somebody to go out and buy something just because it's going to go up, but you absolutely hate what they stand for or hate what it is that they do or, you know, any of those kinds of things that just, you know, are going to keep you up at night. It's kind of the same idea. You don't want to invest in companies like that. But I think for me, I think it has to be a personal decision on how, what you think about different ethical treatments. I think when you look at some of the the human rights complaints and discussions around the world, some of those are certainly valid. And I don't know enough about them to comment either way. But I do know that you just have to follow what you think is right. And one of the things that I like, I guess, about the ESG idea is the idea of focusing on some of these things. But I guess i I'm not a big fan of the gaming of it that some of that's been going on recently, but I think you have to put your money where you're comfortable putting your money. It's kind of like trying to impose my ethics on Andrew and vice versa. I think by and large, there's a lot of things we're going to agree on, but you know, some things maybe not won't affect us as much as other things. But I think bottom line is you need to put your money where you feel comfortable putting it, whether it's human rights complaints, environmental complaints, or whatever other concerns that might be out there, whether it's with the management or whether it's with staffing issues, whatever those may be. And I think, you know, you just need to do what you feel comfortable doing. Having said that, it's really hard to, like Andrew said, to find a perfect company. There is no such thing. And there's always going to be some could potentially be some bad actors or there may be something about their business that you aren't a huge fan of. So I think it's one of those things that I guess you just have to give some thought and decide what you're comfortable doing and kind of go from there. Makes a lot of sense. What do you think about the other part of her question where she, I mean, it wasn't really a question, but she kind of said her recent research suggested that industrial and precious metals can be smart investments during a market recession. Do you agree with that or do you know of other alternatives for somebody in that spot? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. So I guess I have a couple thoughts. Some of it is a, I guess, a bird's eye view of knowledge. So take it for what it's worth. I have done some work trying to learn more about kind of the lithium idea as well as a little bit about copper because those relate to renewables and relate to energy and electricity in particular. And so I thought maybe that would be a way that I could dip my toe into those sectors. And after looking at some of those kinds of companies, I found things that just made it really hard for me to want to invest. Part of it is the base metal that you're dealing with is, I think a large part is commodities. And so the commodities market is not something I'm A, comfortable with, B, know that much about. So there it weeds the uncomfortableness. And part three is I don't really know what I'm doing. And so 
to for me to invest in a lithium miner like Albemarle, I would really have to understand the lithium market and the commodity market to understand the pricing of it because it fluctuates wildly, first of all, and that's going to affect the bottom line of a company like Albemarle, who is one of the leading lithium miners in the world. And kind of the same idea when you look at copper, Freeport McLaren. I think back I, Yeah, thank you. I, I butchered that. So they're a very big uh, copper producer, and it's kind of the same idea. They're very good at what they do. That's certainly not in question. But the nature of the beast of the fluidity of copper and the pricing makes it hard for me to understand what I'm really buying. And so, so there's that. Then, if you look at some of the other metals that are involved in these lithium-ion batteries, cobalt which is mostly mined in Congo, which leads us back to Crystal's concerns about environmental and human rights concerns because there's a lot of concerns about those mining operations as well as some possible shadiness with legalities. And so that whole thing just kind of makes me a little bit nervous. I just kind of stay away from it. It's just not something that I feel comfortable playing in. And gold is not something I've I've ever invested in. And I frankly don't know much about it other than it's shiny and it's worth a lot. That's about all I know. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money. Not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. 
As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. <laughs> I've noticed that a lot of the call them doomers, these people who constantly will tell you the world's going to end tomorrow, you typically find them touting precious metals and gold and silver. And they've been doing that for years and years and years, ever since I started first paying attention to investing. You hear the same messages, different characters, same messages. They're correct maybe once every decade or so. You know, Broken clock is right at least twice a day. So the idea of, of precious metals can be appealing because you think that you have protection and you'll be the only safe one and every while the world's going to chaos and, and you're going to be the one who's safe from all of that. So there's like that kind of psychological allure behind that. But if you really break it down to what you're, if you're talking about buying gold, precious metals and trying to essentially shield yourself from a slowdown or a recession, you're basically playing a timing game because over the long term, businesses and the economy are healthy and they do well. So not only do you have to be right, but you have to be right once a decade. You know, we don't get recessions that often and the number of years we're in recessions are generally short. So the odds are against you in that regard. The companies who, like Dave, you were saying, doing research into the companies that are involved in the mining, those can also be looked at as favorable during recessions for all the same reasons we just said, because their prices might hold better during a slowdown. But not only do you have a lot of the human rights issues and environmental concerns, like you mentioned, there's also regulatory costs that come with a lot of that stuff. There's a section in every company's annual report where they have to report and disclose on some of the mining, some of those conflict countries, right? So there's just more kind of paperwork that goes along with that. And just as a generality, a lot of these companies have to spend a lot of capital in order to mine these materials. That's not all of them. And some miners are very long-term plays and maybe are outlaying capital now to have decades and decades and decades of cash flows. But a lot of the very volatile precious metals are stuck in that very difficult circumstances where they have to put a lot of capital in and then they're dealing with this prices that are so volatile that I don't even know how you plan a five-year business plan if the price is up 100% down 75% in a couple of years. It makes it hard to make a consistent steady profit, which is how a lot of wealth in the stock market has been built by a lot of people. Those are great insights. What are your thoughts on like investing in gold or silver? Is it something that you would ever consider doing? I remember we talked to Vitaly a while ago and he was like, I'll never do this. And then he ended up buying it for, I think, at least a little while. Yeah. I'm in the camp of if it doesn't generate, if it doesn't produce anything, I'm not interested in owning it. I want assets that produce. So like Buffett calls a farm or right, business. Yeah. You know, in my case, I'm not buying farms, so I'll buy stocks. Right, yeah. That's a good point. So I guess, do we go there with the crypto and whether that's a replacement for something like this? I guess people have made that argument with Bitcoin that it's digital gold. And I don't really have an opinion here or there on it that would be any more credible than anybody else. I think there's a lot in the crypto space that actually probably will be productive one day. But there's so much more that's not that <laughs> you better be like an expert 
in that stuff or don't even touch yeah. it. Exactly. We're definitely at very early innings with crypto and all the use cases that could come out of it. But I think one thing that we've learned over the last, I guess, year or so is that it moves in tandem with the stock market, at least at this point. And so the idea that it was a digital gold or that it would be kind of depegged, in other words, it wouldn't move in the same way that the stock market moves, it's kind of proving that maybe that's not necessarily the case. So it's early innings. I'm by no means an expert, so you know, kind of take that for what it's worth. I guess one nugget I would like to throw out there for you, Crystal, is we did an episode back in August of 2021 with Marin Katuza, and he's a really smart guy in precious metals and just metals in general. And so he would be something that if you wanted to learn something about, I think he does YouTube videos as well. And so he would be a cool person for you to check out if that's something you're really interested in learning more about. I would highly recommend him. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. Awesome. Well, let's move on to the next question then. So this one, this person says, hello, Dave and Andrew. I have a question. I know one of Andrew's hard and fast rules is sell if the company has negative earnings, but would you sell immediately even if you are at, say, a 20% loss? So I guess the first part of that question, he's kind of addressing me. The easy answer is, yeah. <laughs> okay, even, would it matter if it's a 20% loss or would it matter if it was a, you know, a 5% loss? Or would it matter if you were up 10% and they had negative earnings? Would you still say bye-bye? Yeah. So it's not what the stock has done that's making me want to make a sell on negative earnings. It's simply the fact that negative earnings historic has been tied with bankruptcies. So an overwhelming majority of the major bankruptcies we've seen in the last 20 plus years have also had negative earnings. And the simple idea that why do companies go up? Why does the stock market grow? Because companies are growing. How do companies grow? They take their profits, they reinvest it. Those profits become bigger profits. When you take profits, you reinvest it. And now instead of more profits, you have negative profits. You did something wrong, most likely. Sometimes it's not your fault, right? The market can, or the economy can be brutal, you know, and one day I may make an exception for the exceptional company, but I haven't found that to be the case yet. And so I've sold every time I've seen negative earnings because I want compounding. Uh, just to clarify, it's not like a quarter of earnings. We're talking like a full calendar, 12 months straight of negative earnings. Yes. Thank okay. you. Okay. So some people may think, oh my gosh, you know, they had one bad quarter and he's dumping the company. No, it's like 12 consecutive months of negative earnings. And, and sometimes that could be, you know, two quarters are okay. And then the other two are really bad. Something like that. I remember you had to sell Disney. I think it was not too long after the pandemic started because they shut all those, their parks down and they ended up having negative earnings for the year and you had to sell it. I remember that. Yeah. That one in particular, they basically said that. We had made these capital outlays. I think it was related to their amusement parks. So imagine you spend $2 billion or whatever it is on these amusement parks and you're expecting cash flows to come from that. The cash flows aren't coming. So the amusement parks are just sitting there rusting. So you know that the $2 billion we just spent is lost. That's not going to compound. So their stock price, I think, is kind of followed that idea. It's been flat because they haven't had much free cash flow. 
Exactly. Those are great insights and that's a great way to think about it. So, all right, let's tackle the second part of the question. So what if you see something you don't agree with in a voting proxy and you are totally against it and feel it could overall hurt the company, not today or tomorrow, but if the wrong person steps in, would you sell for a loss? So what are your thoughts on the, I guess let's talk a little bit about voting proxy and maybe how that impacts our decisions to continue to own or not own the company. Hmm. Yeah. So a proxy is a form that management sends out to shareholders every year. There's a bunch of details in there, but the details, I guess, that I tend to care about is who are the board of directors and who owns how much of the company. Those details tend to be in there. So as an example, if we were to take Berkshire Hathaway as an example, Warren Buffett is the CEO and chairman of Berkshire Hathaway he also owns 30% of the stock. So for whatever reason, Buffett decided he didn't like himself as CEO. He could vote people onto his board of directors, and then the board of directors would pick a new CEO. But because he owns 30% of the company, he has 30% of the vote for who is on the board of directors. And then you know, he basically can decide keep himself as CEO because he has a pretty strong vote there. But that's kind of the idea if you think about checks and balances in businesses is you have the shareholders who have a voice and then you have a board of directors who a lot of times can be more independent. So they're almost like an outside third party to basically, I don't want to say like regulate, but basically keep the CEO accountable. So if the CEO messes up, the board directors can do something. And if the board of directors messed up, the shareholders can do something. So those details of how that kind of goes and who's being reelected every year for the board, that's all in the proxy statement. Now, do you want to tackle what the voting proxy? That's the overall proxy. And then as part of this whole process, every year they're doing the proxy, they're electing the directors. They also will hold shareholder votes. So every year shareholders will vote on pretty like pretty standard things that tend to be just voted through all the time. For example, did the CEO earn his compensation for the year or do we approve his compensation package? Most of the time shareholders will vote yes, yes he did or she did. But sometimes you do see actually shareholders vote no if they feel like the CEO did a poor job. That's one way that shareholders can police themselves against the CEO who does a bad job by not approving their pay package. Other things that they'll vote for would be to change the structure of the board of directors, to change how they meet, to change who the company's auditor is, the accounting firm that that looks at the books. So it's a lot of jargon, a lot of stuff that generally just kind of gets flown through no problem. But you do see the occasional company, which is something I ran across with my investment in Griffin, where you get into a proxy fight. And so somebody who's a shareholder who owns a significant stake can basically propose a vote that other shareholders can vote on. And so you basically say, hey, I want the board of directors or I want the CEO to be doing this. And then they'll send out proxy vote materials and then everybody votes. So I don't know if that kind of explains how that process works, hopefully on the surface level without getting too into the nitty gritty. 
I think it definitely does. Didn't add this last year with the Berkshire meeting. I think one of the larger shareholders, I think it's a pension fund. I think they were pushing to get Buffett removed as, was it the CEO or chairman? Or maybe it was both. I can't remember what, but it, it was kind of comical. Yeah, I think they wanted to split and they said that Buffett should not be the chairman and CEO and that it should be two separate roles, which is completely ridiculous because it's Buffett's company. And there's a ton of chairman CEOs out there. It's not like this is an uncommon thing. And it's not like Buffett has done a bad job. Like he's been trouncing the S&P, especially lately. It's, yeah, it's absolutely a yeah. ridiculous idea. Yeah, it's, it's pretty comical. <laughs> so I guess let's ask the question then. Let's say that you see something in the proxy or you read about it from other shareholders. Would that be something that would give you pause to continue to own a company or would it be something that you're like, I'm out, you know, if they vote something like that in as whatever it may be? Yeah. Our, our favorite two words over the last few months, right? It depends. <laughs> so I've seen, I don't know. I get so into the weeds with this stuff. Like I just don't know how applicable it is for, for the average investor, but I've seen like board structures where it, there's like a document that tells you how all of the details of the board goes and how they get elected and all of these things. And so sometimes the board can be designed to basically keep the CEO and his buddies all in place. And so even if you are a shareholder who comes in and makes a big ruckus about it, you can make the ruckus and we can do the votes but it actually doesn't mean anything because him and his buddies still have their committee that decides who the CEO is. I've seen, I've run across that. And so I did not sell a stock exactly because of that, but as one of many factors is kind of how I saw it where, and I've said this before, but basically if you're a manager, a CEO in a company I'm investing in, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt, right? It's like innocent until proven guilty. But once you make a questionable decision and a huge capital outlay that looks questionable or did not perform well or something in that nature, or you didn't have a good track record, now as a shareholder, you're starting to think, okay, this guy's obviously screwing up. Is there going to be somebody to come in and replace him? And then if you dig deeper and you look into the proxies and you see that actually there's no way for somebody to come in and clean things up then that's probably a situation where you're going to want to sell. But it's because you have both the entrenched management and you have management doing bad financial things and not allocating capital well. I do invest in companies where it's like basically like a family business and they have majority ownership and they've locked that all up and there's nothing you can do about it if you don't like it other than walk away and leave. But they have good track records. I like the way that they present themselves and I trust the things they say and I've seen them do good with the money and I trust they'll do that in the future. So that's why I say, you know, solely on the proxy statement, I wouldn't sell or do anything crazy like that, but it could keep me from buying, but you do want to factor it in as one of the other factors and kind of paint the whole picture rather than make like a generalized statement. Yeah, I would it. agree with, I think one of the things you have to think about is you have to kind of keep it all in relation to the overall 
company. And when you buy a stock, you're buying a part of a business. And part of buying that business is buying, is buying the management that's going to be running it. And you have to trust that they're going to do what's best in the best interest for you as well as the business. And if they're just looking out for themselves, you'll discover it pretty quickly. You'll see it either in their compensation packages or the way that maybe they glorify themselves above the business. There's all kinds of ways that you'll discover all these things that will, it'll become evident. And then you can decide if that's something you want to continue to have your money involved in or not. And it's all part of the package. Sometimes you can have a great CEO, but a horrible business. And sometimes it could be vice versa. I think it was that phrase by a company that's so great a monkey could run it because someday one will. So it's kind of that, that idea. And it's all part of the learning process. And I think really the only thing that would really ever make me go, I'm out, is if the company is obviously doing poorly and is losing money and the management is voting themselves huge pay raises. You know, something like that would tell me that, hey, these people are just trying to glorify themselves on the way out of the business as it goes, you know, to zero. And I don't want to be involved in that because, you know, they're obviously not trying to turn around the business. They're obviously just trying to suck as much out of it as they can. And that's unfortunately, this is a, I guess, a generalization. But if, if you see a CEO or management teams that job hop a fair amount, kind of, I guess, be a little bit wary. If you see them come in, like if you notice that their track record is that they're with a company for three or four years and then they come in and they've done that a lot, chances are they're not going to be with that company that you're talking about for a really long time. So it'd be something you'd want to kind of keep your eye on to make sure that, you know, let's say that this, the industry standard is the CEO gets two million a year, for example. And all of a sudden this guy's granting himself 14 million a year, including all of his options and stuff. He'd be like, you know, maybe not. So, but again, those are all part of learning about the company and understanding the management and how they pay the management. And those are all parts of checklists that you can add to help you kind of weed out some of this stuff. You should vote. Anybody that owns stock has the ability to vote and it's super easy now. You can literally do it through your brokerage account. I did it this last year through Fidelity and it was a breeze. I just went on there and clicked a button and voted. It was super easy. So, you know, that's what we pay for is one of the right to do that. So I strongly encourage you to do so. I would say, again, the danger in saying generalities, but in general... The bigger the company is, the less of that you'll see. Almost like some of the really small, small companies, you have to be careful because the CEOs can kind of skate under the radar and pull heists like that, or they're just pillaging the company. Eric Schlein kind of talked a little bit about that with our interview with him uh, way back in the day. So something to keep in mind. I think it's good these, you know, this listener is looking at the proxy, but at the same time, don't get so caught up in it. I think the business is the most important first and foremost, and then an innocent until proven guilty unless something looks completely egregious. Like just because a manager is paid a lot, I wouldn't necessarily disqualify a company for that. It would need to be multiple factors. Good. Good points. 
All right, folks. Well, with that, we will go ahead and wrap up our conversation for this evening. If you have any questions about anything that we talked about today, please check out our website, einvestingforbeginners.com. We have a great search bar at the top of the page that can help you find all sorts of topics that we discussed today, proxy statements and things of that nature to help you learn a little bit more negative earnings, for example, all kinds of stuff that you can learn more about and it can help you on your investing journey. So without any further ado, I'll go ahead and sign us off. You guys go out there and invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety. Have a great week. We'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com.